Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In by Kulisevsky. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Windy, and I'm joined by my sidekick and best friend, Bardi. Hello, Bardi. Hello, Windy. And our tactics guy, and a man who refuses to sit down at football, it's Nathan Lee Clark. Hello, Nathan. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Pictured in Spurs' um, picture of the fans, tweeted post-match. Uh, right at the back. Doing, doing like what looks like an almost sarcastic <laughs> applause for some reason. I'm so shocked. I'm so shocked that <laughs> no, you did something sarcastic. I wasn't feeling it. I, I know my voice sounds sarcastic and my entire personality is sarcastic, but I wasn't feeling sarcastic at the time. Uh, good time, Nathan? Yeah. Yeah, really good time. Um, big shout out to to James from uh, Planet FPL. Planet FPL. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, my tickets, he... Um, snuck us <laughs> we we did a i hope i'm not dobbing us in uh we we did sort of a seat swap with people who wanted to be dan on the on the touchline and nice. we we could go up and get a nice tactical view um nice. and talking of tactical view like he was he was spotting everything before i did um really really smart bloke uh, yeah i've i've um long admired james's content he's always seemed like a very sound guy so i'm glad you got to hang out with him that was very cool and bardy you are in tropical climates i am i'm in mexico so if i sound a little bit different that's that's the reason why i, I didn't pack my microphone which was a very naughty thing to do well not to do little echoey but we'll make it work we'll make it work yes. we, need, we need our body here um very sad week in the world of spurs this week we um obviously announced that sadly giampiero vetroni is it vetroni i want to say vetroni not ventroni Vetrone. yeah that's um, good enough windy had, had passed away um, and, you know, this news was met with universal sadness from the players. Obviously, he meant a great deal to a lot of our players, um, was a, a really important figure behind the scenes at the club. And you could see that post-Brighton match. Um, really just like such an emotional outpouring after the game. Um, 
Kane was really choked up in the post-match interview. I don't know if you've seen that, but he was he basically couldn't speak. He was on the verge of tears. Uh, Conte was in tears after the the minutes silence. Uh, it choked me up watching it. I must say, it was it was very very hard hitting. So um, he he passed away from a type of leukemia. Um, Cole, one of our ex subs, put a really thoughtful message in the Discord. Uh, to say in the wake of Giampiero's passing, the best way to help leukemia patients and others in hospital is to de- donate blood. If you're in the UK, if you go to blood.co.uk, uh, you can find out where to donate blood. And for those elsewhere, just Google donate blood near me and that will point you in the right direction. I think giving blood is a good thing to do. It's something I've done for the last decade. I strongly recommend it. It's it's painless. It's, it's straightforward. It's easy. Um, and, and you might save a life. So So that's something nice that you can do. Um, also, this is Baby Loss Awareness Week. I did not know that was the case, but um, one of our listeners got in touch, Kian Melanian, who is a, a, a quite incredible person. I spoke to him uh, about his and his partner's experience of miscarriage. They, they had five miscarriages, Goodness. which I, I think is just absolutely staggering, uh, like an incredible thing to go through and to still have the strength to carry on. Um his story is at the end of this podcast. I hope you you able to take something from it. He's a very inspirational person. I'm very happy to say that he and his partner now have have two children. That that won't be the case for everyone who experiences miscarriage. Some people don't get that lucky. Um, it really, really opened my eyes to what people go through, and it's it's way more common than you might have thought. So um, have a listen to Kian, and we'll put some links in the show notes as well about. Uh, baby loss awareness week um let's talk about football that's a very sad opening uh but we had a win we had a happy win to talk about so we'll start with the team selection um and it was interesting for a change because we switched formation nathan's from 352 yes yes um god where to start with this uh were you were either of you anticipating a 352 did you either of you feel it was likely it was it was obviously in discussion amongst Spurs fans, right? The the tension, mm. the pressure to play the three five two was mounting. But did either of you feel like it was coming? I thought it might be coming just because the results haven't been great recently. But then I, I've also also admired Conte's stubbornness. So I thought <laughs> perhaps he might not do it. And that was I was hoping he wouldn't do it just to kind of stick the finger up at us fans for thinking we know better. It turns but, out we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't surprised to, to see it. We were all gonna see it at one point. We were always gonna see it at one point. Against Brighton was probably the, the smart place to, to do it. I also thought we might do it. Um, but for slightly different reasons. I thought we might do it simply because... So Conte's got himself into a situation where he doesn't trust a great deal of our squad right Mm -hmm. now for various reasons. And I thought he might need to do some rotation, might want to do some rotation, might want to rotate Richarlison out, who has had like an arguably slightly quieter period. Uh, And the next best option is is not Brian Hill, based upon what we saw against... um, Eintracht Frankfurt in, in midweek. So I thought he might bring in Basuma just to change things up in that respect. So that's what he said 
That's what he claimed. Oh, okay. He said it wasn't a tactical formation decision. It was just about rotation. And the thing with that is that it is a lie. It is it's a lie. I promise you it's a lie. You look at the way that we approached the game, um, the the positions that we had our sort of wide central midfielders take up, how exactly that played into to Brian's exact plan. Um, I feel very strongly that this was a, a very much a tactical um decision and obviously like the fitness and rotation thing plays into that enables that go you know goes hand in glove or whatever but um it it um prevented us from being at another midfield the thing with that is that brighton played a midfield too right but they Mm -hmm. they they played the three four three basically uh with their um their attack being quite narrow yeah so again, we're looking at that situation that we saw against Arsenal, we saw against Leicester, we've seen beforehand as well, where mm. um, teams can sort of pin our back five mm. um, with with three players. In this case of Brian, it was the, the wing backs. Um, and then use the space outside of our midfield too to give us real problems. And that, and Deserby said as much, he said, I, you know, I, I prepared for the 3-4-3 and then I found out just before kickoff that they were going to play a 3-5-2. Mm. And so, so Brighton were clearly set up to do what Leicester did, to do what Arsenal did um, around our midfield too. And so we were very well prepared for that. Well, it, the, the main thing is that... Um, the wide central midfielders, so Hoybier and Bentancourt, can move over to where the sort of inside forwards, number 10s are, hmm. without abandoning the centre of the pitch and leaving Dyer isolated. Um, when we pressed high, often Bentancourt, but sometimes Hoybier, would join in the press and go to press the, the wide centre-back who, who was near to the ball. Um, which is actually kind of a little bit sort of 3-4-3-ish as it happens, but you have that flexibility there. And then in possession, we were able to move, again, those two weights, Hoibia and Bentecourt, way out wide and, and join up in sort of a tripling up out wide with the wide centre-back and the wing-back and just open up a different angle there. Um, so... Three five two did a lot of things for us, things that we I you know, we said on this podcast we thought it probably would, but didn't, as we also said it probably wouldn't um, you know, solve everything in offense for us. Um, you know, doesn't replace Kulisevsky's final third passing. Mm. Um one thing that we sort of were speculating on is that this would be a better role for Sun that um, he would be less removed from build-up and he would be more free to just be an out-and-out forward and running behind. And I think that we saw more of Sun getting him behind and him being more of a threat that way. But then I also thought there was a strength, a lengthy period sort of in the beginning of the second half where Sun was coming towards the ball a lot and Kane was staying up top. So we didn't mm-hmm. see... And, and Sun losing the ball in those positions and struggling with his touch in those positions. So we sort of saw it both ways. I don't have a, a definite opinion on on that. Um, anything to add on the three five two outside of that, you reckon? Um, I, so I watched the game in a kind of a vacuum where I was in a sports bar with very few people, just one other Spurs fan who, who's um, from England but now lives in Canada. But we didn't have any sound on. So it was hmm. you're watching it in a very sterile environment. So you can't pick up anything from, from the crowd and you can't pick up any of the narrative being pushed by the, by, by the commentators and stuff. But I found the game 
I don't think there was that much difference really between how we played a 3-4-3 and how we played a 3-5-2. We were still kind of looking to attack on the counter. I, I've always set up a first in that kind of a three where he, he, he's not so much in charge of trying to build up possession and build up play. Um, but I can, I can see a future for that formation with a slightly more, slightly better attacking midfielder who can pass the ball a little bit better. I like it. I think there was some promising signs. Brighton were a very good team. They've they've slipped straight from Potter into Deserby, and they look great. And they are they're, they're on course, I reckon, for a top seven finish easily. And I, at the end of the game, I was pretty happy. I thought we needed those three points, and I don't think we can underestimate the impact of um, Giampiero's death either. That's had a that's a huge thing on our squad, and it's great that they came through that and they showed the the strength to do it. Clearly, clearly, very, very significant to every member of the squad. A lot of them have, have, have spoken um, quite passionately this week. It was very, very evident at the end of the match how much that meant to them. And obviously, those kind of things can go both ways, right? You, you, certain people, those things, will, they will motivate them and it will push them and they will be dedicated and others, it will, will undermine them and it will be playing on their minds. Um <laughs> And you kind of just have to respect the way that people grieve in different ways, I think. Mm. Um, but as a collective, um, I, I think that we responded really well, really positively. Um, I thought the tribute at the end was, was really touching. Mm. Same. I think, I do think, um, Doherty had a, had an impact. He didn't, sometimes you forget when the, when a player is, when a player is out for a long time, it's like they almost become better than they actually were. And it's, it's the thing that used to happen all the time to Lamella, who'd be out for six months and all of a sudden would be thinking that, oh my God, he's actually a really good player, but he's, he was just fine. But I did like the way Doherty was linking up with people. He's far more composed on the ball and he made some good covering tackles as well. So I think it was a, it was a promising, um, cameo from Doherty. Yeah. I, I think that's a very interesting one, right? He was clearly rusty. He was clearly still not a full fitness. I mean, blowing up your ligaments at uh, his age can be a can be essentially a career ender, right? Um, I didn't realise how bad the injury he picked up in preseason was. Um, but you know, he's it was big. against Villa. It was against it was against Villa. Yeah, or was I think he? So. No, it wasn't Villa. Cash no. didn't, didn't he? Cash, yeah. Um, so yeah, that that um, that can be really really detrimental to an athlete's career, right? But um, he there was there was a couple of points where he like. Um, there's a point where he like he won the ball back, laid it off, made the run ahead, received the ball back, and then he was clearly like done. And then he had to like get rid of the ball and just sort of gave it away. And obviously he's still lacking that sharpness. But even a I don't know what you want to call him a, a 70% Matt Doherty, probably an improvement on Emerson Royale. And I think that says a lot about both of them and and what we're going to be like going forwards. Yeah. So I've got a few observations on what you've just been saying. Um. Firstly, I think it's really interesting that we play the, the, the midfield three. And aside from Sessignon, who we'll talk about separately, I thought Hoybier and Bentancur were our best players, uh, which yeah. probably speaks volumes. Hmm. Um, I didn't think Basuma played very well, to be honest. I think he's... he. I mean, I basically just completely agree with what Conte's been saying about him. He just doesn't get the system yet. He hasn't adapted to the system yet. He's quite... Um, so far for us, he's quite hit and miss on the ball. Sometimes he'll play a really nice forward pass. Other times he'll completely sell what he's trying to do and it just gets cut out. 
uh, I was kind of more impressed with him than I. So I, okay. I came back uh, home and looked online and saw quite a few people were very critical of him, and I was I was much more impressed in person. Um, okay, but I mean maybe know. that's something about how he covered space sure. and, and whatnot. Um, yeah, I mean I'm not saying he didn't do some good because he clearly did, and you know as I said, I think Ben Tancor and Hoybier were both really impressive, which is probably a lot to do with Basuma, um, or at least having another player sure. you know holding the midfield. Um, aside from that, I thought the system allowed our wing-backs to be a bit more advanced. Yes. I thought Sessegnon really took advantage of that. I thought, you know, the ex-subs know that I'm a massive Sessegnon fan. I'm, I'm, I, th- I think there's so much potential there. There's a huge upside with Sessegnon. I said last week, I think he's our best wing-back. And, and I say that with Ivan Perisic in the squad. We have not seen a fraction of what Sessegnon can offer. Having watched him a lot for Fulham in England over the years, we've not seen a fraction of what he can offer. And he's running in behind. He's, his final ball's not always there. But he's running in behind. The The volume of runs in behind, the timing of the runs in behind is so good. And, and I felt like that was on show at times in this match. Wasn't always picked out. Uh, also, he was really, really strong defensively. Um, very front foot defensively again, which I like. I thought Doherty was... I thought he was okay. I thought he was okay. He's he's clearly not fit. That saving challenge he made at the end mm. that Eric Dyer was going mad about was fantastic. Showed really good anticipation. And to be honest, he made several interceptions in this game and I was really impressed with how he anticipated things. Um, but I felt like he was really let down by his passing at times. And that is that is ring rust. And that's completely fair enough. He's barely played over the last few months. He's going to take some time to get back up to speed. And, and that's why it kind of surprises me that Conte hasn't brought him on a bit more late in games to try and you know f- give him that time to get back up to speed because we're going to need him and we're going to need him quick pretty quickly uh I think there's a lot more to come from Dotti. I don't think he's a great player I think he's a good player I think he definitely offers more in the final third than Emerson Royale and I'd be happy just for us to persist with him for a little bit um but definitely some ring rust there I think really good observation about the 3-5-2 in the wingbacks. I think all of our wingbacks benefit from a 3-5-2 where they have less responsibility in, in their own third. Um, with Royale, that's more about build-up play than it is about yeah. defensive work. The rest of them I mean, is sort of more defensive <laughs> work, to be honest. Mm. Um, but yeah, that that is that's a really good point. Actually, that's the one of the additional benefits of the 3-5-2 and... Okay, let, let's do this. Let's do this. Um, do you want to see three five two going forwards more? Certainly, when Kulusevski is not available. Right. So that is the follow up question. Um, what do we do with Kulusevski if we're playing three five two? Do you think he can play as one of the number eights? Would you play him at right wing back? Um, would you just have him come off the bench? No, because I think the the three four three with Kulusevski on the right is tried and tested. It looks so good last year. Okay. Um, and I think if you've got your first choice back three, which I think first choice for me back three now is now Longley, Dyer, Green. and and Romero. I think if you've got that back three and Kulusevski, you play three four three, and that's a really well functioning side that can can move the ball through the through through the the pitch quickly and effectively and get it to Kulusevski's feet. And I like that. Um, Brighton change to a four. I think two, three, one, um, around sixty minutes, and then yeah. we changed to back to the three, four, three because they were doubling up on the wing back out wide with the full back and winger. Yeah. Um. So shows the sort of defensive benefits of three, four, three, and where that's more applicable in protecting the wing back. And then we made subs on on both winger roles to to get fresh mm. legs to help out. 
Um, I mm. think Sessegnon and Doherty were both pretty gassed at that point as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Brighton put on um, Mitoma, who I'd never seen before, but that he's, boy can he's dribble. He's good. He can, really good. He can slalom. He, he goes through like Alberto Tomba. They just leaving defenders in his wake. Mm. And yeah, Doherty needed some help. Um, I agree with you guys. With If Kuliszewski's fit, we play 3-4-3. Um, perhaps with Doherty at right wing back. And if um, if he's not fit, play 3-5-2. I would like to see um, Kane and Richardson have a little bit of a run up. Yeah, yeah, I, that 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 makes sense to me. That works for me. So you play, you 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 pick which formation depending on Kulusevski's availability, and I guess also you can pick between whether you want to run three four three with Kulusevski or three five two, depending on the the tactical situation of the opposition. Um, with all of that said, like I'm I'm at peace with that. I still kind of want to see. I'm just curious about Kulusevski as an eight in a midfield three, just to, uh, just to give yeah. it a go. Mm. Yeah, I do. I do totally get that. I'm um, just to pick up on your point, Nathan, about Kane and Son, who was more advanced. So what I did find really interesting this week is that we've seen Kane play totally different roles across two matches. Yeah. So Eintracht Frankfurt, Kane dropping deep, very deep, to receive the ball yep. with with Son and Richarlison running in behind him. Um, and Kane being expected to link play. And then in this game against Brighton, you know, Kane being used to pin Dunk or whoever as much as possible. Um, really interesting that he, I mean, he's such a versatile player. We know this about Kane. He's, he's really good in, in pretty much all areas of the football pitch. Um, but specifically very interesting roles in two matches back to back in a week. Fascinating. Uh, Yankee Doodle Spursy says, without being overly analytical or tactical in thought, Brighton play with some serious creativity and guile in and around the box. With how well we mostly kept them at bay, does that encourage you for when we go against bigger opponents? Additionally, does that frustrate you more about the way the Arsenal match played out? My personal answers are yes and yes. So I think Bardi's right. I think Brighton are good. I think they're a really good team. And and I think what's interesting about Brighton is they don't really have any stars. There's, they're just kind of all at the same similar level. Um, but tactically, they're so spot on. Potter obviously had them incredibly well coached. And now De Zerbi's come in and, and, you know, from everything I've read about him and heard about him, it seems like he's a really talented coach as well and will keep up that level of organisation and, and tactical um, brilliance. Um they're a good team. And what, what do you think, Nathan? Are they? Is this a, a sign that we can cope well with sort of possession-based sides who are good around the edge of the box? I think certainly the three-five-two is is much better for that. Um, we've just spoken about when you're gonna we're gonna play Kulusevski at certain points, um, and that sort of forces the three-four-three. Um, I guess the sort of you're probably, well, not probably, you're, we're going to be better on the counter with Kulusevski on the team, right? So there's sort of a mm. payoff there. You're less less solid um, parking the bus against really good sides in the 3-4-3, but you get a better threat on the counter. Mm. Probably worth the payoff, to be honest, if Kulusevski's there, um, because you, you, um, you, you are improved defensively by the threat you offer on the counter. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You, you push, you, you mean, it means the opposition can't commit so many players forward. And if they do, they're punished for it. If they do, they're punished. Does that frustrate you, Bardi? In like the Arsenal match, you know, we, we could have gone into that one with 3-5-2. Um, suggestions were that Basuma had a knock before that game, but we could have played skip. No, it doesn't frustrate me. I, I think the Arsenal game was more down to individuals being idiots rather than <laughs> the 3 4 3. We were, we were well in that game until, until Lloris and Emerson decided to be mm. stupid. Um, Frazzle says, How was it experiencing a match next to someone who's so heavily involved in the FPL side of football watching? 
Although James is Spurs through and through. Nathan, did there, was there much FPL chat? No, no, none at all. None at all. None at all. No, but he, like I said, he was he was really switched on tactically faster than me to, to sporting changes. So um, really a smart guy, obviously. And then he, um, I've already forgotten the name of the Brighton um, dribbly player who came on, but he, he spoke Mitoma. He, he spoke well of Mitoma before he came on. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. He's good. So he's, so Brighton have this policy of signing players who they've scouted and then loaning them out for a season to a, a league that they think will benefit them in some way. Really so they signed, smart. Really smart. They signed uh, Matoma <laughs> why, from... Why can't Tottenham do this? Why can't Tottenham oh, do this? Quite. Like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't... It, I mean, we've got the we've got the money. We've got the the, the, the kind of presence. Why can't we go and do mm. something, like, something like this? Or is it because our fans would be like, oh, they're not marquee <laughs> enough? Well, you you need to do both, right? If you're Brighton, it, it kind of makes a bit more sense for them. For us, we can do that as well as signing players who improve the first 11 immediately and stuff like that. Arguably, that's what we've done with, with Pat Massar, right? But we mm. we should have been doing this well and frequently for a decade at least. Um, but we haven't had the recruitment structure um, mm. for basically all of that time. Mm. Yeah, agreed. So Matoma specifically came from the um, the J League and then was sent on loan to Belgium for a season. <sighs> yep, uh, and, and did really well. Did really well in Belgium. So he's come back now and has a chance to establish himself in the Brighton squad. And they've got several players that they've done this with. This is this is not a new thing for them. They've been doing this for a while. It's tried and tested for them. It's really good. It's a really smart move. They're a very well-run football club. A lot of admiration for what they've done at Brighton. Jack Clark's doing really well as a wing-back in the championship. So, you know, good work, mate. See you around next year, I guess. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Arsenal. I don't like to talk about Arsenal so much, but we did have a question from Steve Nuth. Uh, Nuth? Sorry, Steve, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, he says, Pre-season, you asked us not to be too concerned about Arsenal's early good form as they had a fortunate list of fixtures against lesser teams. At what point do we start getting concerned? I mean, we should be concerned at the, the state of the referee <laughs> just giving them a penalty. I missed this. Talk, talk, talk me through it. What happened? So Gabriel decided to um, do I'm a little teapot in his own area and um, the ball hit his hand, but it was well out of his silhouette, whatever they used to, to term it. It was a handball, but the, the referee didn't even, VAR didn't even tell the referee to go and look at it. And then in the second half at 2-2, a crucial point in the game, uh, Thiago has gone to try and nick the ball away and he's made contact with Jesus really softly. And Jesus rolled, has gone down screaming, thumping on the floor. 
And Oliver's given a penalty, which was also a ridiculous decision. And VAR never invited him to go and look at it either. So um, I don't know where VAR were there on Oliver. Annoying. Um, yeah, we did have a conversation pre-season about Arsenal. And we did look at their fixtures and say they could get off to a flyer. So, you know, don't don't be surprised if they do and don't be too fearful. The problem now is obviously they've they've really put together some serious momentum. They've only not won one game. They lost against United. They've won all their other matches. Um, but their fixture list does take a turn now. So they, suddenly, you know, they're playing in Europe as well. So that will be tougher on their squad. Um, they play Man City in a, in a couple of game weeks time. They've also got Chelsea and then Brighton back to back and Wolves uh, as their last game before the, the World Cup break. So... It wouldn't surprise me if Arsenal's form started to tail off a bit, but I would say if they're still winning most of their games by the time the World Cup break comes along, yeah, we probably should start getting a little concerned because that's a lot of games. You know, there's only three. There's only three teams. Well, there's only one team in the history of the Premier League that's um, three times won eight out of their first nine games and then not go on to win the Premier League, and that's Arsenal. They've done it three <laughs> times before. It, they'll make it. The they um, they don't have a great squad. They've got a good first eleven. Uh, and when injuries and suspensions and arrest warrants start pouring in, then uh, they might suffer. They might suffer. So we'll see. Uh, let's talk a little about the Eintracht Frankfurt game, because I thought that was a really decent performance yeah. for Spurs. And I, and I think it's been a little undersold by some of our fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. They were all right. They were miles better than I thought. They were a good side, right? And it was, they were a good side. And it was, it was a tough game. It was a tough game. In, in Champions League, if you can get a point away from mm. home, that's all right. It's not so bad. So it, it might be a good point in the end. It was a shame not to not to take it and Spurs not to be... We, we're used to Tottenham being so ruthless in front of goal, aren't we? Um, so it was very strange to see us waste so many opportunities. But it was a decent point as long as we now back this up on, on Wednesday. That's the, that's, that's the crucial part. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think um, the groundwork was all there. It was just the finishing, the final ball and the finishing was off. Which was a pity because I felt like we really deserved a couple of goals um, based upon how well we we built up. And look, they had some good moments as well. We can't we can't ignore the fact that Eintracht Frankfurt did put together some really good attacks. I thought their midfield played well. I thought Lindstrom looked really good. I liked him a lot. Um, they're clearly a talented. I like Sal a lot as well. I thought he played played well. Um, Sal, mm. so it's not sure how to pronounce it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they're good, but I think we're better. And I think we showed we're better and we will, I, I'd like to think we'll beat them at home. Um, and I think we would deserve, to, if we played like that again, I think we deserve to beat them at home. Nathan, anything you spotted in this game? Oh, I actually wasn't that impressed with Frankfurt. <laughs> I thought okay. they, were, they were kind of okay. poor, I thought. Um, I, was, I was really pleased to see us control a game, to have a bunch of the ball, yeah. uh, to create from possession. We created okay from possession and, and we didn't put away the sort of expected goal or <laughs> whatever we put up. Um, really missing Kudusevsky, obviously, in this game. Um, but I, I was feel I felt much better after that game than I do after the Arsenal game. Um, just generally, because we needed a game. It had been a lot. It had been a while. Like not even the sporting game really. It had been what's Fulham <laughs> since mm. we like controlled mm. a game. So uh, we were needing that, and I I wasn't totally shocked that we then again because Kudelski's missing, um, mm. weren't able to turn that into a whole bunch of high quality chances and and those into goals. So I I felt good about this performance. You're right, a point away Champions League is good. I think that we can still top this group. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think there's a time more to say than that. Um, other than of course, you know, we 
we are in need of Kulisevsky. So I, I did a I did a tweet earlier today um, looking at all of our competitive fixtures this season. Uh, I said um, Kulisevsky is crucial to, to us creating chances in the final third and Romero is really important for us playing possession when the opposition team are pressing us. And if you look through all our fixtures this season, it's only the mm-hmm. first two games all season that we've had both of them um, starting. There's a run of three games in the middle where um, Conte chose to drop Kulisevsky for Charleston. Um, so it's not entirely forced error this, um, but nonetheless we, we've we've been missing one or the other right ability to play from the back or ability to finish in the final third. Um, I think that goes a considerable way alongside you know Emerson Royale playing as many minutes as he had to explaining um, a lot of the mysteries around this season. To be honest, mm. um, so if we fail to address either of those or you know if we don't address one of those in january um we've made a significant mistake in my opinion i completely agree it was it was nice to see brian hill that um he he can get some minutes i'm not sure it was a a great example of his of his qualities but it it was comforting to see him get on the pitch and conte try and use him yeah it's good to know he he exists um yeah he looked he Mm. looked you know, rough and rusty again, you should expect, as we saw from Doherty as well. Um, he had one nice play by his own corner flag, I thought. It looks really good. Um, but uh, looked poor, obviously, in a way that you can, you know, Conte or anyone, any Hill doubters can say, oh, look, he's bad when he's played. Um, and also, not only that, but literally struggled in physical challenges with his size, which is Conte's whole position, right? Um, exactly. Yeah, so sort of a mixed bag for the the Hill fans out there, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think this is it with Conte. He's going to prioritise physical power and, and ability to, to press um, over on the ball ability um well no i think he can press i think he showed that he's got the pressing ability the um, the problem is he can't break a press because they just swat him away like he's a, a pesky fly. He, he can press in the way that he does charge around really well harassing players but i don't think he's that effective at actually winning the ball back i mean he can force a misplaced okay. pass with his tenacity but he's, he's quite mm. weak in the challenge mm-hmm. um so in light of that we had a question from ic biryani 91 who says in the what would kulu do uh, video. Nathan talks about how Kulisevsky cuts back early on the right side to cross the ball far post with his left foot. Could we ever play Perisic as a Kulisevsky cover, or is that crazy talk? Um, as the resident biryani expert, if your if yours is icy, <laughs> put it back on the stove and <laughs> get some. <laughs> <in there>. um, <laughs> so we actually saw Perisic come on to play. Um, wait, did he play the opposite flank? He came on for Son, didn't he? Yeah, okay. All right. So we've we've seen him play a few minutes in, in an advanced role, but he was essentially playing, you know, second wing back in, in yeah. that role. I don't know. I, I think um, before the Brighton match, um, this is one of those things I was like, well, I'm not convinced it's going to do a ton for us, but I'm willing mm. to see us make experiments. Sure, let's see that. Mm. Let's see how that goes. Um, now we've seen the 3-5-2 and probably leaning more towards just, just playing a 3-5-2 and, and not playing Perisic up top. Um, I don't know. I, I'm still not against seeing it a couple of times. He's 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 yeah. got a he's got a cross <laughs> that we're we're, we're sorely mm. lacking whenever Kulisevsky is not um, on the on the pitch. I really enjoyed the video, Nathan. I thought it was uh, I thought it was some of your strongest work, to be honest. Oh, really? Okay. I sort of really I, good. I I I was very reluctant that it would come across 
in the the negative way that it would come across like oh all these players are so bad we're so rubbish without Kulusevski wow that sort of thing and I want it to be hey look we're just missing this and if we can and when Kulusevski's back we'll be we'll be really good and if we can get another player in our squad who can play passes like this we can be consistently good almost every game because we're almost mm. gonna have, always have one of them ready um that that you know the finishing quality is obviously excellent in our squads um our, our defending as a deep block is pretty good, not forever, and and better in three five two than three four three. Um, mm. We can play possession football. We just need that one player with creative freedom, um, and we've been missing him recently. I agree, but I also think it's slightly more simple than that. We we almost just need a player who is left footed. Is is left footed? Yeah. He plays on the right, cuts in, <laughs> can take a touch, can can move the ball inside and pick a pass. Like I honestly think. Okay, clearly they're going to be below the level of Kulusevski, but I feel like there are several players in the Premier League who would have been available at a reasonable price who could have done the job as cover. So I'm thinking Dwight McNeil, I'm thinking Hakim Ziyech. There are players that could play that role and add something to our squad uh, and allow for us to not have to resort to playing 3-5-2, literally changing our formation when Kulusevski's not available. Perisic and Hill? Maybe, huh. maybe, maybe. I mean, I don't... I think the thing with Perisic is if he played on the right... I think he'd be using his right foot and going on the outside because that's Perisic. Sure. Like he's going to want to find space and and create room for a cross. He's not going to cut in and play balls in between the defense, central defenders. No, he'll shoot. He'll he'll, he'll he'll will obviously he'll will. Like hmm. that's his thing. He does want to look for those passes, but he also wants to carry the ball more. I think, and possibly carry the ball inside more as well. Whereas Kulusevski does carry, but he tends to carry in straight lines and then still cut back and look for a pass. Um, I think Hill wants to commit players a little bit more than Kulusevski, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think we've missed a trick with essentially not buying... Uh, we tried for Madison, right? We, that's what we wanted Madison for. We wanted him to, to cover that role. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out. I did a little data scouting thread um, the other week on on potential uh, backups. Some interesting names there to have a look at. Um, I, I'll retweet that again with the pod, I guess. I don't know. Mm, nice. Any any um, surprises for you? Um, yes. Um, uh, I've forgotten who I've forgotten his name but I'm picturing him in my mind give me one second oh Damari Gray Damari mm. Gray came up I was like yeah not not so convinced by that one and then Julian Brandt who is like considered a flop at Dortmund but like plays and gets assists and you know does does that stuff we want um, yeah and then you know you won't be shocked to learn that Elise is like second on the list oh, I love yeah. I love him I love him I, I love him I, I think, think he's brilliant who's second on the list Elise yeah I think he's so good um, Damari Gray is I think good but he is basically a, a right footer who plays on the left so I think he's the inverse of what we yeah, require I didn't I didn't specify for feet in my scouting um, ah. I don't think that matters a ton I also didn't like say position so if there's like a number eight type player um, you know I'm I'm open to them as well um, for example, um, oh my days, I've forgotten his name as well. <laughs> Number eight at Inter under Conte, Barella. Um, Barella came up, but then I filtered him out of the price range uh, along with a bunch of others. Interesting. Right. Before we, before we, um, hand over to Keon for his, his fantastic, um, piece that he recorded with me. Uh, let's do one of your questions. So we got this from Lenny. He says, if you could clone any player on Spurs, so this is this is a phrase that American Spurs fans <laughs> use because it is a is a is a thing that's used in American sports. So when they say on Spurs, they mean San Antonio Spurs. 
<laughs> in Spurs' squad. If you could clone any player in the Spurs squad, who would it be? I think obvious answer is Kane. So you can have him in both the 9 and 10 role. Interesting, because uh, that's what we discussed earlier. Uh, to feed himself and Son, but was curious if he had other thoughts. The idea of two Christian Romero's lurking around the pitch is also tempting. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think you can probably only get away with one Romero in your back line. Yeah, also, I, I think cloning Kane is the, it's the easy... It's the easy chart. It's the easy option. So I would just be tempted just to remove Kane from that. And I don't think I would clone Son either because it's almost like the the weaknesses in Son's game would just be magnified if you have two of them on the pitch at the same time. So I think it would probably be Kulisevsky. I think with the, the amount we've spoken about, how useful he is, I think to have a second one of him would be great. But I was also, as soon as I saw the question, I thought Dembele. If I could go back and find one of his hairs lurk, like lurking around the changing room, I would use that hair and make us make create a, a Dembele and put him alongside Bentancur in midfield, and would be all right. Do you then. know, what? I was thinking Kulusevski as well. That was my immediate thought because of his versatility and the fact that he could play multiple roles. Um, and you could have you could get away with having two of him on the pitch at the same time. Whereas, other than Kane, I don't think there are many players you would want two of them. Like they they fulfill they fulfill their roles really effectively. But would you want two? Hmm. Can't think of many other candidates. You know. Um, I could. I could work with two Bentancurs and Centre Yeah. Yeah. I don't know because I really like Bentancur and I think he. Uh, his last few games, I think, have been his best run of games at Spurs. To be honest, mm-hmm. um, I, to, we didn't talk about it. I don't think, but I thought the Arsenal game was his best ever Spurs performance. And I say that, you know, we lost that game in the end in a quite pathetic, meek way, uh, having gone down to 10 men. I thought he was outstanding. I thought he he was really, really impressive in that game. I think his pressing is excellent. Um, he does have a little bit of a, a Dembele-like trait in that you can kind of tell within 15 minutes if, he, if he's going to be good or not. <laughs> He can, like if he, he he can sometimes have a few rough touches in the first fifteen minutes, and then it's just awful. Or he's brilliant and he has a storming game. And I, I like I feel like he does get into his own head a little. Uh, he he can also be a bit safe with his passing. Still, I think I I kind of want to see more. But he's he's good. He's very good at carrying. His pressing is brilliant. I think that's his biggest strength for Spurs. His, his pressing is absolutely fantastic. I would clone Son, so then I could sell him twice. <laughs> <laughs> You son of a bitch. Um, I just want to talk about one thing because we didn't mention it when we started talking about Arsenal. So I've not been around many Liverpool fans or like sensible Liverpool fans. And in the sports bar yesterday, I, I spent some time with them. Obviously, I sat with the Liverpool lot rather than the Arsenal lot. And I was a, I was a scouser for 90 minutes. And it's very strange just how down mm. and they are about their team and how down they are on Salah and there's a lot of things they're not happy about, but they're in a position where they can't really complain too much because of how good they've been recently. So I, I just found it interesting. And I, I do wonder how much longer Klopp has got left if this mm. continues, if this kind of slump continues, because I think they, they'll never sack him, but I think there will come a crisis point where they'll just need to just part ways because the relationship is going to get a bit too toxic. So I do think that was a, just an interesting thing that I saw, just how the Liverpool fans are feeling towards their club it's, right now. It really is reminiscent of what it was like for Pochettino in his last season. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, they, they, the fall from grace for Liverpool is, is quite dramatic. They have 10 points from eight games. I mean, that is yeah. unthinkable for Liverpool. They're, they're already 14 points behind the league leaders. And the thing is, they've got a good team. They've got good players. They've had some injuries this this season, sure. 
I think the loss of Mane is really, really significant for Liverpool. I think. Whereas the lo- the loss of Mane and the the drop off in Salah has just. Been- and I think those two are linked. Honestly, I do. I think those two things are linked. So uh, Edwards left their recruitment team um, at the end of last season. Now I don't want to say that one season without a data analytics uh, guy <laughs> in charge of recruitment, <laughs> one window in which the manager was allowed to blight by a nine that he found hard to play against um, and has completely upended their squads and ruined them. But what I will say is that they stopped taking drugs for a period of time and now they're exhausted. <laughs> also, I think Harvey Elliott is going to be a very good player. No, he's good. He's, he's going to be exceptional, but he is young and not established yet. And so there happened, there's a drop-off there in their midfield this season. And, you know, we can see the impact that has, in my opinion, on Trent Alexander-Arnold as well. That whole side of the pitch is is not what it was. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, the perfect storm. Things have hit them at the same time in the same way that it happens in Poch's last season at Spurs. Uh, and I just want to run one thing up the flagpole mm. as well. That Virgil van Dijk is not the greatest defender in the world because the greatest defenders in the world, their careers last more than three seasons. He has been an average defender who went to Liverpool, had a great three years. That's it. You're not Maldini. You're not Nesta. You're not Baresi. You can't be the greatest defender in the world if you've only had three good seasons. It doesn't work like that. Eric Dyer has had more better, has had more good seasons than Virgil van Dijk. So get in the bin. That's it. I, I find <laughs> your argument up. persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> Until that last sentence, it was pretty persuasive, and then and then it got very bardy on us. <laughs> right. Um. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Thank you guys. And um, now I'm going to slip in this conversation with uh, with Kian, who I think it's I think it's really fascinating and moving and and, and something people should should pay attention to. So enjoy enjoy uh, listening to Kian articulate what he and his partner have been through um, so wonderfully. So why are we speaking today? I'll let you. So we're speaking today because it's uh, Baby Loss Awareness Week and um, my wife and I, uh, six or seven years ago, we had five miscarriages uh, in the space of about 18 months, I would say. And yeah, it was one of the most difficult experiences of our lives. Uh, We had been together at the time for about 15 years. We met at university. And right from the get-go, so this is, you know, when we we're in our early 20s, I think both of us thought this is this is it. I'm sure lots of people probably think think that, but yeah, I really got a very strong feeling that this was this was the one. Um, forgive the <laughs> forgive the cliche. And um, so yeah, I, th- I think we both sort of thought this is the person we're gonna we're gonna end up spending the rest of our life with, and and would have children. And um, that was always on the cards for us. We always we discussed we we discussed it. It wasn't something that we shied away from. Like I've heard some people some people do because it's a big thing. Um, and yeah, so so when we when we first started trying, I think miscarriage wasn't really you know there was a there was a little voice in the back of my head. You know what if maybe maybe that could be us. But it wasn't something we had any experience of. Nothing that we really had spoken to anybody about and so when it happened that first time it it came as a a massive shock 
this was we were early it was an early what they call an early stage miscarriage so within the first three months um i think we were about to go in for our three-month scan which is the first first one that most people go for and uh they scanned amy and whilst we were in the scanning room it all got a little bit quiet and uncomfortable and the woman who had scanned amy had said i'm not seeing what i should be seeing here um and we were told that it was a possible ectopic pregnancy which which can be extremely dangerous um but fortunately it looked as though um it wouldn't require intervention so um there was no sort of surgery that was required for amy or anything like that so yeah we we it was it was just a complete shock really and i think we just we struggled to sort of take it in um in the meantime i i i booked a holiday for us um to new york we'd never been to new york and i as a bit of a surprise i, I booked this holiday to new york for for amy just to cheer us both up and we we flew off to new york um and in the days before we flew we realized we were pregnant for a second time and I always I always refer to New York because this was sort of our what I consider our, our worst experience of it um, a couple of days into New York in a little cafe off, um, off Times Square um, Amy realized that she was bleeding again and we just sort of looked at one another and thought you know this is this is happening all over um, and it was pretty horrendous we had to so Amy did need intervention because we needed to fly back. We were only out there for a, a week. And the doctor that we went to see out there had said that we she'd need intervention because um it would have been it could have been dangerous on the flight. Um and we had to go to an abortion clinic because there was no other option for us. We couldn't go into a any other clinic at such short notice. Uh, and for um, her to have the the um, the intervention that she needed, the surgery she needed to remove um, the what they call the product of pregnancy, which is a charming way of putting it. Um, but medical terms, you know, anyone who's been through anything like this will will understand that. Um, you hear plenty of medical terms and think you could you could maybe maybe <laughs> use use different terms for us. But anyway, um, yeah, she had to go into an abortion clinic. And I just sort of I think I pushed all the emotions and all the thought and the, the thought processes and all that sort of thing. I think I've just sort of pushed everything to the back of my mind um, because I was trying to deal with the the technic technicalities of it all, mm. the cab rides across the city, um, you know, getting ourselves fed. We had to speak to our pretty amazing Airbnb hosts and we just told them um, what was going on because we were just in a state. And yeah, eventually, you know, we got back to we got back to London. Um, Amy had had the procedure. We we got on the flight. Um, I remember at check in, I I mentioned I wanted I said to the um, the woman on the on the check in desk, look, you know, I, I just wanted you to be aware of this. And I think we had sort of a doctor's note for some reason. I can't remember all the, the details, but she she just started she started welling up and looked at Amy and just said, I'm I'm so sorry. Um, and you start realizing that people, when you start talking about these things, mm. people have experience of it and um, it almost immediately affects them. Um, but we got back to London. Um, I think we got back on the Sunday and I went back to work on the Monday. And I just thought I'm going to crack on. I'm just going to carry on with work and just try and um, 
divert my attentions and you know I think a lot of people do this thinking this is the best thing to do just just get your head down um, and concentrate on something else think about something else and about a month later I was at home with Amy this is after work and I just I lost it I just completely broke down in tears and I just didn't know it just all came sort of spilling out and I call that a sort of a bit of a grief. I call it a hangover. I think I just had this this grief hangover where I had just hadn't processed anything mm. um, to do with what had happened to us. And I phoned work the following day and just I called off sick. And I think I was off for maybe the ne- the, the rest of the week at least. Um, and I didn't really we didn't talk to anybody about it aside from our our immediate friends and family. And we actually you know we kept it to ourselves until we'd had three. Uh, and then Amy wrote a piece for The Guardian um, and we just were overwhelmed with the amount of people that got in touch with us um, and with her specifically. And this is what really struck me is that the amount of um, messages and comments that she would get. And yet I didn't I didn't get anywhere near the same reaction. Um, and I've started working with the Miscarriage Association since and, and speaking about my experience because I just think men need to talk about these things more. So um, quite often you'll see the Miscarriage Association putting out social posts and you take a look and I always I always scroll down the comments and you just see how many men are commenting on these things compared to the amount of women. Um, and it's it's minimal. And, you know, I suppose my my message is always that this affects the partner too not always men this affects the partner too and it's a shared loss and it's something that i think men need to talk about too um it's a huge thing and and we can you know i don't think there's there's malice in it at all but often people would ask how is how is amy doing how is she doing but they they wouldn't ask me how i was doing um and i i you know i get that i can understand it obviously um the the pregnant person is going to be going through the the physical trauma of it the worst part of it no doubt in my mind the worst part of it but we're it's not that we're not affected as well you know it's a shared loss this was um this was our baby these were these were our babies um and um so yeah we 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 talk about it more openly now and i i try and yeah what i i try and say to people who contact me is to to talk to people um just get it out um whoever that happens to be and sometimes it can be difficult talking to your partner about it i found with amy that she and i processed the losses differently at different times um and like i said earlier i think that's partly to do with the um the the fact that she's going through the um the the physical miscarriage herself and all i had at that time was this notion of a baby um this idea in my head okay well in six months time which is what it you know what it was most of the time in six months time we're going to have a baby here and suddenly that was gone in the blink of an eye um and that was really difficult to get my head around um whilst amy was was bleeding a lot of the time because miscarriages can don't don't happen in don't happen just like that Mm. miscarriages sometimes can take weeks to result be resolved um so yeah it was difficult for us both to meet in the middle and find common ground it took us a long long time and these as i said right at the start these were really difficult times for us because for the first time um 
with a, a woman that I'd been with for 15 years, I didn't feel like we were communicating properly. And that was so scary um, because suddenly you're questioning your relationship and thinking, why, what's go- what, why can't we talk? What's going on here? And it was just this, just this misalignment of our emotions at the time. And it just took, it always took me a few days or weeks to just process everything where she was sort of upset and angry right this um you know it just took me it took me time and you know she would she would get angry with me and I would get angry with her because we weren't we weren't seeing eye to eye at that moment and it took us a took us a long time to do that and after the fifth miscarriage um she and I we we told our work um so we took time off work they were both you know both our places of work were really good with us and we we went for a walk and we walked for about I think we walked for about 10 miles across London and we just talked and we just held hands and we we walked together we didn't even need to we didn't say say much to one another it was just a case of processing it and um I think we really we understood one another so much better but I mean yeah five miscarriages um you would imagine that you would get used to to that and that's that's what it took um so yeah that's why we're talking today (laughs) I mean, it's just I really admire your bravery and openness. It's um it's quite something. Um I mean I guess I wanna I wanna dig a little bit deeper. I don't want to intrude into your life. I, I kind of I have friends who who who've suffered miscarriage. Um and the way it's worked for them is it's been really traumatic, really traumatic, and I've seen that. I've seen that firsthand. And then they've tried again and it's happened. They've had they've got pregnant and they've had their baby and and they're happy ever after. So to to have it happen five times uh, to have it happen four times and then think okay let's let's have one more go at this how do you how do you find the strength to carry on and do that mm. um yeah I, th- I think and there's a there, there becomes a there becomes a bit of an urge i think i think i don't know that's it's a difficult question to answer i think we both we both wanted to carry on mm. until until you don't feel like you can i mean we you know we've we've spoken to people who've had one or two miscarriages and they didn't want to they couldn't try anymore i don't blame them it's horrendous um and it's there is a lot of taboo around miscarriage you know there's a lot of um we don't people don't want to hear about the blood they don't want to hear about the 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 stress and the upset of it and i can totally understand that mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I think you know we were at the stage where we were thinking this is not going to happen for us um and we i think after the fifth one we were thinking if this doesn't work for us this next time then we're gonna we're gonna look at other other options um and we're we're probably this is probably it for us i don't think we'll try again um because it was just it was so much and you know the one of the reasons that we started talking was this this weight of we hated lying to people all the time because we were saying Amy especially you know she was avoiding nights out um, because she didn't want people asking her oh are you pre- you're not drinking are you pregnant mm, mm. Um, we didn't want to be lying to friends and family um, it was it was such a relief when you know she we what we say we went public with it you know she mm. wrote this piece for the Guardian suddenly it was all out there. And all our friends were saying, mostly saying, I'm so sorry. I mean, we had some pretty insensitive comments as well. And again, that's something that people who have experienced miscarriage will, um, I imagine, recognise. You know, we had a lot of insensitive comments in terms of, 
you know people offering sort of misguided advice i think is is probably the best way of putting it um and you know try trying to help but it's not it's not always helpful and i think this happens with a lot of um a lot of subjects that are taboo because because we don't talk about them enough Mm -hmm. um and we're not open and honest about these sorts of subjects because they're they're horrible um and um it's one of the reasons why i'm so passionate about talking openly about them because i think we um people um but men in particular need to talk more about these things and i think it i think it does tie into um men's mental health we need to talk more about these things and we we don't you know i think quite a lot of the time men in particular are seen as sort of a a rock Mm -hmm. um you know what to be relied on Mm-hmm. And so um, we think we can't we can't be open about our emotions and our feelings, and it's not it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the point you made earlier about people asking after Amy, and when you say that, I assume they primarily mean asking after her physical health, and that is a hangover from that prioritization of physical health over mental health, which is uh, a legacy of of generations gone by. And I think it's starting to change now. And these younger generations really prioritize mental health, but um, m- men like us of a certain age perhaps don't, and and it's a real problem, and has been a real problem. And I think um, the the sort of the work that you're doing here, campaigning for people to talk about this more openly, and to communicate and to, to share resources, I think is, is so important. Can you tell us a little bit about the the charity that you're supporting and um, and where people can find more information? Yeah, so I work really closely with the Miscarriage Association. Um, they've got a helpline. Um, they've obviously got um, a website as well. I believe they've got a live chat. So I would say, you know, if ever you want to talk to somebody, and sometimes it's easier to, to talk to somebody anonymous rather than friends or family mm. who may be too close to the too close to the subject. I'd say get in touch with a, a charity like them. Um, I think Tommy's as well. I think they also offer offer support. Um, but yeah, seek these seek these places out. Take a look online. Um, you know, Google men and miscarriage because there's stories out there that will be like like yours. You know, um, speak to people um you know try and if you if you don't feel like yeah if you don't feel like you can speak to friends or family then then maybe speak to somebody online um there is support out there um and and try and try and get it out it sounds like that's been the biggest thing for you the the kind of opening up and um and just being straightforward with people about that has it sounds like that's been really therapeutic for you yeah definitely i think there's a there's a there's a cathartic nature to writing uh, and talking about these experiences um as i think people get with 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 traumatic experiences i think the best thing to do a lot of the time is to be open and honest with others about about it and to to talk about it get it out there um yeah it's it's helped me enormously it's not that it's not it's not still difficult um you know I, I was getting very nervous I was sort of getting a bit shaky before this call because you start thinking about bringing back up that trauma mm. um and it is a trauma you know I, sh- I should say that you know, a lot of the time um men's feelings and emotions are sort of minimized uh, and you know don't don't allow that to happen if you can possibly help it you know your feelings and emotions are valid mm. um and if you can share that with somebody who will just sit and listen then that's that can be enormously helpful and valuable 
Thank you so much. I really admire you for um, the way you've approached this. And thank you so much for sharing your experience. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of people listening who will, who, for whom this will resonate and, um, and it might be useful in the future. For, you know, sadly, there will, there'll be listeners who will go through this in the future. Uh, and hopefully this would have been a really useful conversation for them. Thank you, Wendy. Really appreciate your, your, your platform. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You have been listening to The Extra Inch with me, Wendy, my sidekick and best friend, Barley, and our tactics guy, Nate If you like this, there's plenty more at patreon.com forward slash The Extra Inch. Production is by Nathan A. Clark. Our logo, artwork and website are designed by Trayton Miller. Our music is by David Lindmer. You can find him on Instagram at David Lindmer. Do check him out. He's great. Great, great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us at podcast at theextrainch.co.uk. Subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. And most importantly, be sure to tell all of your Spurs friends. Shout out to the X-Sub, we love every single last one of you. And of course, come on you Spurs. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.